Come on, let's go. By shortwave broadcast, direct from important overseas capitals, we are about to broadcast this moment in our history. Hello and welcome to the History Workshop podcast. I'm Mary Beth Hamilton. Hazel Carby's book, Imperial Intimacies, A Tale of Two Islands, uses the lens of her own family history to make a deep dive into the working of patriarchal, racialized, and gendered power. She draws on that book for this year's Raphael Samuel Memorial Lecture, delivered online on the 16th of June. The lecture's title is Imperial Sexual Economies, and to introduce it, I'll hand over to Nadia Valman of Queen Mary College London and the Raphael Samuel History Centre. Thank you and good evening, everybody. I'm Nadia Valman from the English Department at Queen Mary, and I'm the QM Director of the Raphael Samuel History Centre. And I'd like to extend a very, very warm welcome to everyone here, especially if you've not attended one of our events before. So just a few words about the Raffle Samuel History Centre. The centre is a partnership between Birkbeck and Queen Mary University of London, and we organise a large programme of research, teaching and public events. And we work with universities, with museums, archives, libraries and schools to create new forums for historical education and discussion. And in the last year, we've run, for example, a digital conference with archivists, archaeologists and historians on doing public history in lockdown and beyond. And that was jointly organised with the Manchester Centre for Public History and Heritage. We've organised a series of digital conversations with international scholars on COVID-19 in historical perspective and a series of family history workshops, which tonight's lecture also forms part of. And currently we're running seminar series on pathologies of solitude and histories of sexuality, along with History Acts, our long running series of workshops, bringing together historians and activists. And in the coming year, we're looking forward to marking the 50th anniversary of the Stepney school strike to an event on immigrant oral history at Manchester People's Museum and to kicking off projects on the Jewish East End and decolonizing, decentering and diversifying British history education in the UK. And tonight we're gathered for the 22nd annual Raphael Samuel Memorial Lecture. Raphael Samuel, who died in 1996, was one of the pioneering historians of the late 20th century. He was at the forefront of new approaches that today are familiar to us all, memory studies, oral history, critical heritage studies, and history from below. Gareth Stedman Jones wrote that Samuel wrote with the insights of a literary critic, the acuity of an anthropologist and the wit of a political journalist. And in particular, Samuel promoted the extension of historical studies beyond the academy. He taught at Ruskin College, Oxford and towards the end of his life at the University of East London. In 1966, he held the first history workshop, which encouraged participation from students as well as lecturers to conduct and present research. And in 1976, with a group of colleagues, he founded History Workshop Journal, which today is building an even closer relationship with the center. So before we get, begin to, uh, tonight's lecture, which I'm absolutely delighted to introduce. So now I'd like to hand over to Catherine Hall, Emerita Professor of Modern British Social and Cultural History at UCL, and chair of its Centre for the Study for the Legacies uh, of the Legacies of British Slave Ownership to introduce Professor 
Hazel Carby. Well, hello, everybody. Um, it's a great pleasure to have the opportunity of in introducing Hazel Carby this evening as this year's Raphael Samuel Lecture, an annual occasion except for COVID. So this lecture has been delayed for a long time, sadly for all of us, which has for many years now provided an occasion to celebrate radical voices who give us food for thought. Hazel's distinguished body of publications has established her as a leading black feminist writer, thinker and teacher. She was one of the co-authors of The Path Breaking the Empire Strikes Back in 1982, then wrote Reconstructing Womanhood, How Black Women Writers Made the Novel into a Site for Political and Cultural Reconstruction, and then Race Men uh, on Definitions of Black Masculinity in American Culture, alongside her, her collection of essays, Cultures in Babylon, Black Britain and African America which span her journeys across the Atlantic between the UK and the US. Over her life, we've seen the transformation for black women scholars and writers from the outer margins to the heartlands of political and academic life. And Rick Hazel has been very much part of that. Having written much on other people's writing, and starting her academic career in the British Library reading room, the old one, the beautiful one that some of us still remember, reading narratives written by enslaved women. Now she's written her own memoir, which is also a history, Imperial Intimacies, A Tale of Two Islands. Since its publication in 2019, the book has been very widely reviewed, greatly admired, won a big prize, and proved a most moving reading experience for many, including myself. As Sadia Hartman says of the book, it's heartbreaking and beautiful, capturing the ways in which relations of power are lived intimately, quietly, destructively and profoundly. And I'd like to add to that, that it's also about how intimate relations are also the saving of all of us. The book is a challenge to the conviction that British identity is rooted in the premise that black and brown people cannot really belong in Britain, despite the long history they have as imperial subjects, the service in wars, the work for the NHS and so on, still treated as we know as second class citizens, as the events around the Windrush generation and around the scale of deaths from COVID have so graphically exposed. At the same time, she's issued a challenge to the idea that British history can be written outside of empire. Imperial Identities is a book about the making and remaking of identities. It tells us something of Hazel's own struggle for a black British identity, one which still leaves her with unsettled questions of belonging, living and working as she is in the US. It tells us something of her layers of her being and becoming. Her use of a variety of narrative forms highlights her recognition of the fictional nature of the unified self. She can be the girl or she can be I, the daughter, the writer, the researcher, the black woman descendant of those who she's worked on in the archives. 
From the beginning of the book, she draws attention to the instability of identities, alongside the need for work on the self, knowing yourself as a product of the historical process, as Gramsci puts it, which has deposited in you an infinity of traces without leaving an inventory. Such an inventory, Gramsci says, must therefore be made at the outset. And that's part of the work that Hazel's been doing in this book. She opens with the recollections of a lonely young girl in post-war Britain with a white mother and a Jamaican father. Those memories are juxtaposed with the work she went on to do as a researcher in both England, Wales and Jamaica. From working on the registers of the enslaved in the National Archives and the discussion that opened up for her of systems of accounting and bookkeeping and the silences they cover. Very moving in relation to her father's working life as a bookkeeper. To her discoveries as to the treatment of brown babies, her learning of the regime of the Great Western Railways and the constructions of whiteness and Britishness inculcated for its workforce. To explorations of the glorious parish of Portland in Jamaica and the discovery of numerous people carrying the name Carby, black, brown, and almost white. The different forms and voices allow her to tell family stories that couldn't be told of the decades of poverty, the workhouse, the kitchen as a site of her mother's rage, resentment and frustration, the damage that racial and gendered hierarchies in their structural and personal forms did to her parents' marriage, to explore the meanings of personal and political inventories from political, the political arithmetic of colonial governments to the intimate psychic landscape of structural racism and colonial violence. How did the ordinary people from whom she's descended, the working class women and men, how did they come to understand themselves as white? How were white working class people conscripted to empire? And then there's the histories of her free and enslaved ancestors, histories that are erased from the archive. And so she engages with what Hartman calls critical fabulations to explore. These, I think, are the women that she's going to talk about particularly this evening. Hazel's engagement with black women's writing and lives has spanned her career. And now she's written herself a very British Jamaican narrative that breaks the binary, connects worlds and lives across the Atlantic. So thank you, Hazel. And I really look forward to your lecture this evening. Thank you, Catherine. Um, that was lovely. Um, thank you to everyone at Queen Mary's. And also, I just want to say how honored I am to be giving the Ralph Samuel lecture, even though it's a, it's a year late, it's, it's absolutely delightful. I just wish I could be with you all. My father told me, we come from Portland. In the summers, I would leave Kingston with my grandmother and go to Swift River, and nearly everyone in that place had the name Carby. 
I followed my father's voice to this 1817 register of the enslaved on the Carby plantation in the parish of Portland, Jamaica, stored in the records of Her Majesty's treasury. The register seemed replete with information, lists of assigned names, allocations of color codes and ages approximated. But I knew it could not tell me where we came from. Empire is accounting, continuous and rigorous accounting. The technologies and techniques of imperial governance were wielded by its bureaucrats in myriad colonial offices and in the metropole. Scriveners created order from disorder with pen and ink, purging the subterfuge and the insurgency of the enslaved from their account books. Clerks concealed horror within the gracious lettering of English calligraphy. Bookkeepers invented and maintained an imperial fiction of order when they rendered the turmoil and the violence of plantation existence into regimented rows and columns with headings and subheadings. Accountants transposed people in the columns of profit and loss as they whipped them into shape as numbers in their ledgers. The politics of this arithmetic renders invisible the humanity of those listed and renders what is visible within particular frames. Writing within the confines of these registers and plantation records is an act intended to submit the enslaved to the use of those who wielded the pen. Pen and ink and paper, hands copying and reinscribing relations of domination and subordination. The orderly columns and headings and lists belie the disorder of field, plantation, estate, house, and bedroom. The arithmetic of slavery in the Atlantic world eradicates the politics of its libidinal economy. Slave registers purport to be a rational, measured form of accounting, but in the face of the unreasoning and arbitrary violence that governed the plantation, they are a symptom of imperial insanity. In 1788, Lily Carby, the owner listed on the register, washed up on Jamaica's shores after a six week transatlantic voyage as a soldier with the Lincolnshire Regiment of the British Army. Much has been written about the scenes and scents of tropical ecology that overpower new arrivals as they totter ashore in Jamaica. But what would have assailed Lily's senses was the pestilential stench of death and decay emanating from the guinea ships in the harbor. Soldiers disembarked, weak from vomiting and diarrhea caused by spoilt food and beer, as well as being unsteady on their feet from the incessant churning of the ocean. 
In intense heat, they assembled in columns wearing flannel shirts and wool-lined uniforms before being marched either to the crowdy, filthy conditions of the fort at Port Royal that you can see here on the aptly named Mosquito Point. As soon as he disembarked, Lily would have encountered Aedes aegypti, the mosquito carrying malaria and yellow fever, diseases to which newly arrived troops were particularly vulnerable. Lily would have been told by the more experienced soldiers that if he fell ill with a fever, he should seek care from Jamaican women of color, whose nursing skills were considered far superior to those of military doctors whose treatment was usually fatal. The West Indies was regarded as the death trap of the British Army. Between 1793 and 1801, 89,000 soldiers served in the West Indies and half of them died there. Confinement in the pestilential infested overcrowded conditions of the West Indian barracks amid such a high rate of mortality had a profound effect on soldiers and desertion was an option that hundreds chose, even though it was a serious offense punishable by death. Few deserters were ever found. Everyone knew that the higher the elevation, the healthier the climate. So when Lilly found himself barracked at Fort George in Port Antonio, he deserted into the mountains and was rapidly absorbed into Jamaica's plantation order. The road I traveled climbed gradually and then steeply toward the junction of the Swift River and its tributary, where in the 19th century, Lily Carby held 14 people enslaved on a coffee settlement. The road had been hewn from pathways trodden for centuries. It traced the contours of the landscape, doggedly clinging to slopes when the land dropped away into a gully. At times, it followed the older pathways of the Maroons and the enslaved. At others, it crossed and deviated from them. Bordered by John Crow bushes, paths vanished into the forest, only to return to sight at a higher elevation. I traveled in a car. Lily Carby, like other planters and overseers, would have ridden horses up these paths. Whatever could not be transported by river, donkeys carried between the coast and the plantations. The enslaved, also beasts of burden, climbed up and down on foot. I thought about the people who had carved these tracks into the hillsides with their feet. Those who brushed thick carpets of ferns as they shambled, shackled together in a coffle driven from port to plantation. I wondered what they had carried in their arms, in their memories, in their souls. Colonizers wrought drastic transformations in the biogeography of Jamaica at all elevations, harnessing the bodies, the energies and skilled of enslaved and indentured labor, 
to clear and cut, plant and harvest. Sugar and coffee plantations were designed so that the enslaved would be under constant surveillance while they labored. But within the moss forest of the Blue Mountains, the colonized maintained and preserved routes where they were out of sight, paths that led to and from their provision grounds, tracks trodden quietly at night to attack the Spanish and British settlers, trails between estates used to visit kin or gather at secret meeting places, routes of escape on which to run. Garrisoned in Port Antonio, Lily met overseers and bookkeepers working on two sugar and rum plantations above the army barracks on the coast and in the hills. White men who worked on plantations for the first time were employed as bookkeepers, but their job was not keeping the accounts, but roaming the fields and works, managing and disciplining black bodies under the direction of an overseer. These estates were the sites of Lily's seasoning, his period of adjustment and acculturation among hundreds of the enslaved. Here, he learned to become a white man in a British colony. Here, he came to realize that as a white man, he could exercise power with impunity. Here, he could rape and punish and torment. This power was granted to Lily because of the color of his skin. Despite his modest background as an ex-foot soldier and the son of a Lincolnshire village carpenter. Lily subsequently became an overseer before he set himself up as a coffee planter. Lily lived in Jamaica for almost 20 years in a climate and ecology of economic, racial, political, and social entanglement as thick and inextricable as the aerial roots of a strangler fig smothering its host tree. White slave owners and their white managers, overseers, bookkeepers, lawyers, and administrators exercised control over the natural and social world, attempting to manipulate and police how space was inhabited and traversed. A population of free people of color, the natural offspring of these same white men, struggled to secure the conditions of their own existence, to gain economic, political, and social rights, and to attain positions, if not equal to their fathers, then certainly superior to the small free or huge enslaved black populations. The enslaved was subject to arbitrary violence from white and free colored alike. They survived, reproduced and died in conditions of extreme deprivation and hostility. Nevertheless, they carried knowledge of an Atlantic world, the extent of which their oppressors could not begin to imagine. Knowledge gleaned and exchanged through whisper and gesture in ports, on board ships, from produce markets, in fields and sugar houses, kitchens, 
and bedrooms. This knowledge and cultural memory perpetuated in African practices was transmitted, reproduced and transformed in conspiratorial spaces. Writing, thinking about and being in Jamaica requires plumbing the depths of the cruelly paradoxical and confronting the callous incongruities of the application of the English language by the British. There were three sugar and rum estates in close proximity to Lily's plantation. 171 people were held in bondage in Eden, 210 in Paradise, and 335 in Elysium. Sites of purgatory were given names that evoked ideals of perfect happiness and locations of bliss and joy. Naming practices were a performance, an enactment of political power and control, and registered the depth of contempt for the enslaved inhabitants. Lily registered his coffee plantation and one of his enslaved persons as Lincoln after the city close to the village where he was born. I do not know what names his enslaved people used to address each other because they were not recorded. Lily evoked his English past by allocating to others of his human chattel the names of his parents, brothers and sisters and his cousins. All the enslaved listed on this page of the register as belonging to the Lincoln estate have been given a single name with the exception of one of Nancy's sons who was given to John Carby. Carby was a stamp of ownership, a form of branding. Bridget, an enslaved woman, carried the name of Lily's mother. In his will, Lily acknowledged that he had an enslaved brown child on Elysium who bore the name of his younger brother, Matthew. Lily would have, would have selected family names from Lincolnshire, not from sentiment, but to assert patriarchal power as a man who tried to rule interior and exterior landscapes of labor and leisure, who controlled how bodies existed in space and time, who attempted to penetrate the most intimate, interior, affective spaces of the psyche, whose judgment and authority was not open to question, a man who was a tyrannical monarch on a Jamaican plantation. The name Nancy did not exist in Lily's Lincolnshire family. And Nancy might have been named after the slave ship Nancy that delivered 2,519 captives to Jamaican ports from the Bight of Biafra and Gulf of Guinea Islands, the Bight of Benin and West Central Africa and St. Helena. The Nancy made seven voyages between 1792 and 1801, voyages on which 118 people died. Nancy was born around 1787. 
If she arrived in 1796, she would have survived the Middle Passage when she was only 11. Or she would have arrived in 1801 when she was 14. Nancy is the oldest woman on the register in 1817, and her son, John Carby, the eldest child. Perhaps they were both firsts for Lily, the first enslaved person he acquired, and her son, the first born into his ownership. Perhaps when he looked at Nancy or touched her or beat her or raped her, Lily wanted to remember the first day that he had gone shopping for flesh and congratulate himself on what a successful purchase she was. Though his first visit to a slave market was probably a shock, a horror from which he might have initially recoiled, Lily would have quickly rationalized the condition of the enslaved as providential part of the natural ordering of the world in which these beings were divinely ordained for his use. Nancy's worth was evidence of his own worth. She proved that he was a planter of discernment, of good judgment, who could continue to successfully breed from African captives after the abolition of the Atlantic trade in 1807, the year in which John Carby was born. The experience of purchasing and owning slaves was integral to Lily's self-regard, to his aspirations for raising his status in the plantocracy. Slave owners were gentlemen after all. Nancy, Betsy, Penny and Bridget did not leave a record of their responses to Lily's rule over them, but I think they would have agreed with Mary Prince, who was enslaved on Bermuda, who wrote, I have often wondered how English people, when they go to the West Indies, they forget God and all feeling of shame. They tie up slaves like hogs, maw them up like cattle, and they lick them so as hogs or cattle or horses were never flogged. They put a cloak about the truth. Clearly, the English had no shame. Names were not the only signs of the subordination of the enslaved to those who owned them. Their bodies also bore the visible signs of punishment in their flesh scars from whippings, and for some, the initials of their owners. While Lily was enacting his fantasy of unlimited domination by day, his sleep must have been disturbed by nightmares of uprisings in Jamaica, acts of revenge and hatred undertaken by the enslaved. Tacky's war in 1760, which lasted for seven months, and involved over a thousand enslaved, had been a major shock to the entire imperial system. Daily resistances and refusals were feared for what they might herald, and rumors of conspiracy were common. In 1807, a conspiracy was uncovered at Orange Vale, a coffee plantation just a few miles from Lincoln, which must have made Lily and his neighbors extremely anxious. 
I imagine Lily tossing and turning in his bed, aching, sweating and shivering so hard that he was unable to sleep, fearing that he was beginning another of his regular bouts of fever. Each time it returned, I expect he wondered if this was the bout that would kill him. His fevers also made uh, Mary Ivy, who had borne his children, very anxious. She would have asked him to consider what would happen to her if he died, as she had no legal connection to him or to his property. Of course, it would never have occurred to Lily to marry Mary Ivy, because white men didn't marry women of color, even if, like her, they were free. Lily would have reasoned that Mary Ivy would find some way to survive, and I'm sure other planters would have said the same. Only yesterday, Mary Ivy was telling him that it was time to put his affairs in order, asking him to consider the future of their two children, for they could not inherit Lincoln if they were not named in a will. Well, that pricked his conscience. As Lily turned over on his side, pain rolled through his abdomen and bile rose in his throat. He needed comfort, but he was alone. Mary Ivy must already be with the children. Or oh, wait, he reconsidered. Was Mary not there because he dragged Bridget into his bed last night? It was impossible for Lily to penetrate the fog that too much rum had left behind. So he lay still and tried to gather his thoughts. The harsh call of the jabbering crow would have startled him, an announcement that it was dawn already and time to be about. The leaves of the broad thatch also chided, signalling that a wind was rising, even if he wasn't. He wondered if Nancy would have chocolate tea and arrowroot porridge ready to settle the gnawing in his stomach and clear his head. As he sat out and reached for his breeches, Lily barked Nancy's name. Then he shook again, more violently this time. After breakfast, he would ride over to the Shrewsbury estate and find his friend, <clears throat> the overseer, Francis Shelton. Perhaps Francis could offer advice about making the will that Mary had been nagging him about. If these were Lily's concerns, the women who had to deal with him thought differently. Lily may have been the original source of the Carby name in Jamaica, but what evolved was a tangled web of Carbys from the enslaved, the manumitted and the free. The people they married or set up house with and the children they gave birth to had various gradations of skin tone from parchment to the warm earth browns. All grew and aged in the hills and the valleys of Portland and St. George, but their condition varied dramatically. For some, the names they carried were signs of affinity. For a few, their names could flaunt lines of descent or more modestly announce a chosen affiliation. For many, the names they carried had been imposed on them, a sign that they did not belong to themselves, but were the property of another. 
While a single name was the norm in the registers of the enslaved, the free woman of color in this story, Mary Ivy Mann, bore three names. Unmarried and therefore outside of secular and religious determinations of legitimate familial relations, free women of color declared their relation to the white men who fathered them and to the fathers of their children. By establishing a nomenclature of descent, free women of color made a claim to respectability in defiance of those white men who refused to legitimate their lineage or publicly acknowledge an affiliation. Perhaps free women of color imagined that three names in the records of the parish could be a genealogical anchor for their precarious lives. Baptism in the Anglican church was one important measure of respectability within the free community of color in Jamaica. Three names distinguished them from the unfree, distant from the enslaved, even if they shared the same father and lighter skin tone. Free women of color did not establish bonds of sisterhood with their enslaved kin, and their three names only thinly disguised the fact that they were also caught in a form of sexual servitude as a means of survival. A sign that one is adjacent to power is distinct from holding and wielding power oneself, but Perhaps for these free women of color, it was a measure of their class aspiration. Mary Ivy had two children with Lily. And when she took her daughter and son to be baptized in January, 1811, as her mother and grandmother had done before her, she ensured that three names were entered into the parish record for each child. The eldest, William, born in 1806, was given the first name of Lily's father in Lincolnshire. The girl, born in 1810, was called Bridget, after Lily's mother. To these names, Mary Ivy Mann added her middle name, Ivy. Because their mother was free, William Ivy Carby and Bridget Ivy Carby were also free. Mary Ivy would have been under pressure from her family and from the free black community to which she and now her children belonged to mark how William and Bridget were linked to antecedents. Because Lily was one of the poorer sort with only a small estate, I expect the women in Mary Ivy's family thought Lily didn't amount to much and that he could offer little in the way of status or financial security. Because he was only the poor son of a Lincolnshire carpenter, an ex-foot soldier and a plantation bookkeeper, his name would have carried no weight with the elite members of the free black community on whom William Ivy Carby and Bridget Ivy Carby would depend for their future social standing. As they could not look to the white community of planters for support, it was important 
in the racialized class formation of Jamaica that William and Bridget carry names of consequence. The name Ivy linked them to a wealthy scion of Jamaica, William Ivy, a planter born in 1707 who purchased a thousand acres of land in St. George to add to the 3,500 acres he already held in three other parishes. Mary Ivy's mother and aunts would have ensured that she carried the memories of the black and mulatto women who had birthed William Ivy's children and given them his surname. They would also have passed down stories of the early history of the small free population of color in Portland and St. George in the mid 18th century. Of the Mann family who owned a plantation on the Swift River and of the children born out of wedlock to white male planters and black and brown women who bore various combinations of the name Mann and Ivy. William Ivy Carby and her sister, Bridget Ivy Carby, gradually ascended into the lower echelons of the plantocracy as brown-skinned owners of land and people. The community of free people of color in Jamaica was not homogenous. Some were the natural offspring of wealthy and influential men who'd never been enslaved, and who were able to mobilize their social connections for concessions to the laws that limited their rights. A few had been manumitted, but lacked the support of a white patron and had meager resources to sustain themselves. By 1797, the colony consisted of four classes, whites, free people of color having special privileges, free people of color not possessing such privileges, and slaves. Racial and class positions in Jamaica were determined not only by wealth and access to power. Free people of color collaborated with efforts to maintain white supremacy. Subtle differences in the shades of skin tone marked social standing. The lighter the skin, the greater the value in the marriage market, and those who were dark-skinned were barely tolerated. The consolidation of free people of color as a community was also the story of individuals making and cementing alliances at local levels, often through marriage, so that they too would benefit from increased proximity to whiteness become incorporated into the plantocracy and reap profit from the emancipation of the enslaved population. This was the context of race and class and color in which Mary Ivy Mann sought to secure her future and that of her children. I often wonder how Lily and Mary Ivy came to meet in Port Antonio. Perhaps the women in her family had medicinal knowledge of local herbs and cared for sick soldiers. Perhaps Mary Ivy was a nursing assistant to Edmund Shirley, who practiced medicine in Portland and was the man she would marry after Lily died. 
I tried to imagine the relationship between Mary Ivy and Lily on the Lincoln Plantation. And I speculate that for Mary Ivy, it must have been a life of careful negotiation. I expect she asked herself what Lily was thinking when he stared at her with his gray eyes, as if he was assessing and questioning her motives without saying a word. Could Lily ever fully trust any of the black and brown people around him? Even if he wanted to comfort himself with the thought that he was obeyed, if not loved, he must have recognized fear, hatred, and a desire for revenge in the eyes that looked at him, even those of Mary Ivy, who must have felt resentment at Lily's lack of regard for her precarious legal standing. If Mary Ivy gazed steadily back at Lily, was he the first to turn away because he did not want to know what she was thinking? Did not want to acknowledge that she might have a mind of her own? Did not want to see that she was afraid of him? Mary Ivy Mann lived and worked in Lily's house, but I wonder if she thought of it as hers, if she cared for Lily or only for her children. When she was a girl, perhaps Mary Ivy watched her mother wring a, small, a series of small concessions out of the man who fathered her and her sister, while simultaneously suppressing the urge to wring his neck. For generations, this was the only way free women of color could survive. From the moment her children were born, Mary Ivy would have utilized all her powers of persuasion in urging Lily to make a will. And Lily possibly enjoyed watching Mary Ivy plead with him because it would have confirmed that he had power over her. But Mary Ivy was not paralyzed by her fears of Lily's mortality and the precariousness of her situation. Six months after Mary Ivy had the children baptized, Lily made his will. When he was in the British Army, he would have consumed liberal amounts of rum, like all soldiers stationed in the West Indies, who were issued generous daily rations. As a planter, I imagine he continued his drinking along with his friends, Francis Shelton, George Norman and Sam Pugh, who witnessed his will. Mary Ivy would have been nervous when they were in the house. These men were bookkeepers on the Shrewsbury and Elysium estates. They had reputations for being brutal in the cane fields. And all of them, like Lily, raped enslaved women and fathered children. When they came to Lincoln, I can imagine them scanning Mary Ivy's, Nancy's, Bridget's, Eve's and Betsy's bodies as if stripping away each layer of clothing with their eyes and following their appraisals with crude remarks to Lily. Their laughter would have trailed Mary Ivy as she left the room. She would have avoided them as much as possible, but on the occasions when Lily had consumed so much rum that he passed out, every woman at Lincoln would have been Francis, George and Sam's prey. I can imagine nights when, as they were leaving, Mary Ivy was slammed up against the wall and groped 
while the stink of rum on their breath filled her nostrils. When Lily announced that he had made the will, Mary Ivy was relieved, but she took note that in it he had ignored the second names that she had given the children. William was the primary beneficiary in accord with the practices of primogeniture. And an annual allowance was made for Bridget when she came of age. An allowance plus her light shade of skin enhanced Bridget's chances of making a desirable marriage within the few free community of color. Mary Ivy was to receive for her lifetime 20 acres of land that bordered the Shrewsbury estate on which Lily instructed his executors to erect a house for her from the net proceeds of the Lincoln settlement. This was an acknowledgement that she would have no rights to remain in the house they currently shared. Mary Ivy would also receive two of Lily's enslaved women, the horse and the bedstead, bed and sheets. After her death, the land, house and enslaved women bequeathed to her were to return to the Lincoln estate under the ownership of their son, William. Mary Ivy was not granted an annual allowance, which meant that she would not be financially independent. So Mary had gained concessions from Lily, but she would have to rely on the men appointed as executors to actually carry out Lily's wishes. And Mary would have heard many stories of how executors, particularly attorneys, abused their power, dissolving estates and selling the enslaved to reap their commissions. She could not depend on executors to secure the future of a woman they held in disdain as Lily's mulatto mistress. She needed an advocate, someone she could marry, and that meant a free man of color, someone who had social connections to planters, a man who would be a legal pathway to protecting her and her children's rights. Lily's death would have, would have caused distress among his enslaved not because they mourned his loss, but because they faced being sold to pay plantation debts and attorney's fees, being separated from those they loved and sent far away from the provision grounds they had cultivated and depended upon to sustain their meager existences. Then Edmund Shirley arrived the man who amputated fingers, hands and arms when they got caught in the sugar mill on the sugar plantations. When they heard that Mary Ivy had married Edmund Shirley, there would have been much speculation about what it meant for them. According to rumor, free people of color were even harsher masters than white men. When he moved to Lincoln, Edmund Shirley would have summoned the enslaved Bridget to him. There were two women on the Lincoln estate who carried the name of, of Lily Carby's Lincolnshire mother, Bridget. The two Bridgets shared a name, but that was all they shared. Their lives and their futures diverged 
one being property, the other a free person of color. The enslaved Bridget would have understood that Lily's children, William Ivy and Bridget Ivy, both of whom she had raised from birth, really owned everyone. On her way to answer Edmund Shirley's summons, the enslaved Bridget would have agonized over the possibility that she might be about to be told that she was to be sold and separated from her young son. Edmund Shirley was two years older than the African woman who stood before him, but he did not labor in the fields, so he would have looked younger than her. The enslaved Bridget waited with her eyes lowered, having learned at a young age not to look directly at whoever owned her. She would have tilted her head just enough to appear deferential while still being able to assess the man and to anticipate any move to strike her. Edmund and Lily must have been quite different in appearance and mannerisms, in addition to their 34 year difference in age. Lily was working class and because of his years in the Lincolnshire militia and the British army was probably blunt and barked orders. But Lincoln was no longer being run by an aging white man with calluses on his hands, but by someone who looked younger than her, who had light brown skin, wore expensive English clothes and who tried to intimidate Bridget with his imperious manner. Edmund Shirley might have spoken in a softer tone than Lily, but each word carried weight and authority. Bridget was a young child when she had been stolen, but she retained vivid memories of the ship. I think that when she heard Lily's voice, she would have been reminded of the men who climbed down into the hold to push and pull them up onto the deck where they were doused in water. Edmund might have reminded Bridget of the ship's surgeon who announced that her mother was dead, which was not news to her because she had clung to the cold still body for hours. Enslaved Bridget, would have listened to every word Edmund said, but would have also listened to what was not being spoken, but what was meant. Edmund was talking about Lily and a will and that she had a new owner, which is what Bridget feared. He was saying that Lily had bequeathed her and Sally to Mary Ivy. Bridget's thoughts raced ahead of Edmund's words. When William Ivy was old enough to run Lincoln himself in a couple of years, she would be separated from her child. Bridget held her breath and then heard the words, instead of Sally, and sighed. Edmund and Mary Ivy Shirley were taking ownership of her and her son instead of Sally. Two children, two enslaved bodies, Sally and Bridget's son. One swapped for the other as if they were indistinguishable, interchangeable parts of the plantation economy. On the 1st of August, 1834, the Act for Abolition of Slavery throughout the British colonies for promoting the industry of the manumitted slaves and for 
compensating the persons hitherto entitled to the services of such slaves became law. Under the terms of the act, owners of enslaved people were to receive 20 million pounds compensation divided between them. I imagine Bridget and her son walking to this Buff Bay courthouse to hear the proclamation read aloud. The hundreds gathered there were told that they were no longer enslaved, but for another four years, they were tied to labor for their former masters as apprentices for 41 and a half hours a week for the customary considerations that they had received when enslaved. Food, clothing, housing and medical care, insufficient and inadequate as they had always been. They were offered wages for any hours worked in excess of that time, though the amount of the wage was not determined, nor was the length of the working day. This meant that Bridget and her son continued to increase Edmund Shirley's wealth after the emancipation, which did not free them. As a former slave owner in 1835, Edmund Shirley was compensated for the loss of his property and was awarded 70 pounds, 14 shillings and three pence by the Slave Compensation Commission of the British government. The second Bridget, Bridget Ivy Carby, was nurtured by the Bridget her mother owned. Her future was secured through ownership of human property. In dramatic contrast to the enslaved Bridget, Bridget Ivy inherited all of the most valuable commodity from the Lincoln estate. As a former slave owner, Bridget Ivy Mann, nay Carby, and her husband were awarded 200 pounds, two shillings, and four pence in 1837 by the British government in compensation for nine of these former slaves. What happened to Lily's brown child, Matthew, now a slave belonging to the Elysium estate described in his will? Lily left instructions that Matthew's freedom be purchased when he reached the age of 10 by giving a Negro from Lincoln to Elysium in exchange. For Lily, as with Edmund, black and brown bodies were fungible. In the 1817 register for the Elysium estate, he was listed as a mulatto Matty 10, Creole son of Big, Big Fanny. A year after Lily's will was proved, Matthew still languished among the 310 enslaved men, women and children on the Elysium estate. His name is sprinkled among the youngest of those listed as mulatto. This designation is a brand of the racialized and racist characteristics of enlightenment thought as rationalized in the economy of chattel slavery. 
it is also a litany of rape. Both are normalized in the arithmetic of the register. The naming practice identified people who were the offspring of the white men living on or visiting the estate, the planter, attorneys, surveyors, overseers, bookkeepers and drivers. These men violated enslaved women on Elysium with impunity and Lily Carby was one of them. Matthew, Matty as he was sometimes called, was born in 1807 and was still enslaved beyond the age at which Lily wished that he be manumitted. Whoever eventually exchanged Matthew did not free him. And in 1832, he is listed among the enslaved owned by Bridget Ivy Carby and her husband, Peter Mann. In the search for the descendants of Lily Carby, it has been so much easier to establish lives for William Ivy and Bridget Ivy, the Carbys who were never enslaved, the Carbys who held property in land and in people, the Carbys who enslaved other Carbys, and the Carbys and their relatives who received financial compensation from the British government. These Carbys appear in imperial inventories. The officials of Her Majesty's Treasury recorded their full names in the Office of Registry of Colonial Slaves and Slave Compensation Commission. And their land holdings were listed in the Jamaican Almanacs, which were published annually from 1751 through 1880. These Carbys were not sugar barons or members of the West India planter elite, although intimately linked to them through the imperial sexual economy. But these Carbys profited from enslavement too, accumulating just enough wealth to add to the capital of, of light skin to barter in the marriage market. These Carbys left historical traces. Matthew Carby did not inherit. He was owned and enslaved by his half brother and sister, William Ivy Carby and Bridget Ivy Carby. His life may be an unfilled space in the imperial inventories, but for me, Matthew proved to be more than a loose end from Lily's will. Mulatto Matty, Lily's brown child from the Elysium state, ties me to Lily Carby. His eldest child was my great-great-grandfather. Thank you. Many thanks to Hazel Carby for delivering this lecture and to the Raphael Samuel History Center for convening and recording it. Hazel Carby's book, Imperial Intimacies, A Tale of Two Islands, is published by Verso, and you can learn more about the work of the Raphael Samuel History Center on the link on the episode page for this podcast. Please visit our website, historyworkshop.org.uk. You can find us on Twitter at HistoryWO and on Facebook and Instagram as History Workshop. This is the History Workshop podcast. I'm Mary Beth Hamilton. Thanks for listening. <laughs>